0: Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I'm glad to see that you made it back home to Boston. Uh, We were together in Nashville and uh, doing some uh, proactive safety work, which we'll talk about later at the end of the show. But I wanna get us right into uh, a couple of things. One, we're gonna talk about a couple of recent accidents that occurred that are uh, still in the news because uh, they are that recent. And then uh, I wanna talk a little bit about some of the emails that we've received on some of our uh, previous shows, especially the last two shows. So uh, without further ado, I wanna talk about a um, Cessna TU-206 at the Turbo 206 that was flying Pipeline Patrol down in Texas. Uh, one of the pilots was a 55 year old gentleman and there was a uh, young lady commercials a uh, certificated uh, pilot also in the airplane, at this point, it's unclear as to what the uh, the relationship was with the two pilots, whether one was training the other one, um, or they typically fly two pilots, of course, that'll be something that the NTSB will be looking into amongst a number of other things but uh, in looking at the, just the basic facts, because there isn't a lot of information out and the NTSB hasn't really published a uh, prelim on the, uh, the accident yet, but it uh, looks like they were flying pipeline patrol and anybody that's done that knows that uh, you're flying low, uh, you're bobbing in and out, weaving around things. Um, you're always, always looking for obstructions and obstacles and things like that that you got to avoid Um, and I don't know about you, John, but in looking at the pictures, um, it's, it's quite evident they either hit something which then forced the airplane or pitched the airplane into a pretty steep nose, low attitude, right wing low, um, because it looks like the airplane struck the ground, right, right wing, low nose, low, um, which totally shoved the, uh, the prop, the engine well back into the firewall, into the occupiable space of the airplane, or uh, they were flying low and slow and got too slow and possibly stalled the airplane. So again, these are the things that the board's gonna have to ferret out in their investigation, as well as the operational issues. And then as we've always talked about the mechanical issues um, ruling either them in or out in this particular event.
2: Yeah, it, uh, you know, piston engines and airplanes going slow, it's not like a jet, they can they can uh, accelerate pretty quickly, but you gotta anticipate it a little bit. And, you know, with you head out the window not paying attention to your speed, that's a dangerous situation. Yeah, especially if you're, you know,
0: having to bank around things, because as we know, um, as you get into a bank turn the stall speed goes up um, and, and so you, you really have to have a high level of operational discipline, especially when it comes to the airspeed and making sure that you don't get yourself into a position uh, it'll be interesting, I mean the pictures uh, clearly show that it looks like the flaps were up. Um, And if, again, you're flying slow, you really want to have some flaps down. So without speculating a whole lot, just looking at pictures, uh, the NTSB, um, you know, probably will have this one figured out or at least have a lot of information to put out in the prelim once it does come out. But uh, anytime you're flying pipeline, power line patrol, things like that, uh, the operational issues seem to be very predominant um, in this particular instance. Uh, the airplane crashed in an open field. Uh, if they had a mechanical problem, they lost the engine, they were trying to uh, to glide to an open field, that could be a scenario as well that the NTSB will have to be
2: looking at. Yeah, you know, uh, and one thing that came into my mind as I read the narrative was who was flying. Yeah pilots on board and then who's looking out the window maybe they were both looking out the window thinking the other person was flying yeah communications uh you got it who's flying and we've and we've talked
0: about that as far as uh transference of control and things like that to understand who in fact is actually manipulating the controls and who has the ability to monitor either what's going on in the cockpit or outside the airplane so uh, these are all questions that the NTSB should be asking and hopefully looking for answers. Um, and when we've dissected the process of accident investigation, in this particular instance, uh, there was no post-crash fire. So, of course, fuel, fuel loads are always a question to make sure that they did, in fact, have fuel on the airplane. But I always examined the autopsies because I learned a lot from autopsy reports about the dynamics of the uh, impact itself. And you can tell a lot, not only from the physical evidence in the airplane, the control yokes, especially, or the the, uh, throttle controls, but from uh, from the damage to the victims, you can actually tell whether or not someone had their hands on the controls, whether it's the control yoke or the uh, rudder pedals, by looking at uh, the type of uh, brakes bone breaks that someone might have the marks and then of course you're always looking for the torso marks to make sure that they were wearing seatbelt, shoulder harnesses things like that
2: you know no fire does call in a question uh what what status of fuel was and why were they landing at the other airport 30 minutes away, or 30 miles i forget what it said uh you know we chasing cheap fuel prices
0: Yeah, especially right now, Um, I just heard from a friend of mine that um, he was flying a trip he flies a G 450 and a 550 they're paying 12 gallon $12 a gallon for jet a it was like that's it's out of control now and um, that's going to really curtail some flying. Um, The more um you know the more mandatory type flying with emergency ems and things like that i don't think it's going to scale back much and of course the airlines have their ways of hedging fuel and, and holding the price down a bit but um when you look at the price of jet a and um and AvGas, uh that could be a factor with like you said john people chasing cheap fuel prices so now they're flying the up and down type flights that those are more risky um, that I've seen in the past, um, because not only um, are you, you know, kicking the tires, lighting the fire, let's rock and roll, get up. But as soon as you get up, you're already on your way down. And that's a perfect opportunity, not only to miss things on a pre-flight, but it's a perfect opportunity to miss things as you prepare to land, because you're just getting through. And after takeoff checklist, there is no cruise, you're basically up and then putting it down. I'm working an accident right now. A similar situation where pilot took off with an airplane right out of maintenance was only going only going 10 miles. uh, To the next airport so by the time he got up, he was already starting on the way down into the traffic pattern and had a problem so. Those are these are the kinds of things that from an investigative standpoint why it doesn't sound like much and that has really nothing to do it does because it sets up a storyline it sets up a sequence of events. And now you have to ferret out fact from fiction to see how much influence some of these things may or may not have on the operation of the airplane and, of course, the decision making by the pilots.
2: You know, as I read this report and I it it goes into detail on the uh, on the young lady that was flying and I felt really bad for she's she was only 27 years old, she had a ton of experience. She had a bright, bright future ahead of her in aviation and uh, it's gone. I, I hope it's not from something that was really stupid.
0: Yeah, and um, and transitioning or segueing from that accident to another young lady who was involved in a more recent accident in Idaho flying a Cessna 208 Grand Caravan. Uh, she was moving some cargo for UPS. It was a UPS contract hauler. Um, she too had been flying for better than 10 years, and um, being 30 years old, uh, you know that these are the stepping stone type uh, aircraft pathways. That is, she's flying cargo, uh, building up her time. I guess her uh, uh, big dream was, of course, to uh, to go to a major, uh, and so, of course, they're they're building time and um, and you know, one of the things that uh, I noticed in this accident, she's on final approach, she's shooting a, a GPS approach to a smaller airport in Idaho that um, that is handling all of the cargo feeders, if you will. And uh, the weather wasn't optimum, it was more at minimums. And uh, there's a lot of speculation out there when you start reading Catherine's report and all the people that are chiming in about what uh, may have transpired but she's shooting an instrument approach a gps approach and according to flight aware data it looks like she had executed the approach twice the first time she abandoned the approach right at about minimums or a little above the second time it looks like she was below minimums um, and below the elevation that you'd expect the aircraft uh, ended up hitting some object there's a, a bunch of uh, discussion on uh, on the internet as to whether or not she hit a 60-foot smokestack at a potato processing plant. Um, at some point, up or down on that smokestack, um, there's a, an associated stairway that uh, shows damage. Again, the NTSB hasn't put out a prelim yet, so we really don't know what's fact and fiction other than the fact that uh, on the approach, she struck something, the airplane ended up on the roof inverted um, with the wings significantly damaged um, on top of this potato processing plant. Of course, she ended up receiving fatal injuries. And when you start looking at the sequence of events of this particular accident, and I always look at um, the influences On these types of operations, because I've seen them so many times, I've investigated a number of them, and when you look at these feeder carriers who are on contract to the UPSs and the FedExs of the world, um, you, I always look at the contract requirements because I have found in the past that time pressures influence bad decision making because these packages have to be on schedule. That's how we get these one day deliveries and things like that is the packages that are on an aircraft, these flights that are scheduled to move these packages must be at a destination at a certain time so that there is no ripple effect of having package delays and things like that because these packages are being picked up or delivered on a schedule. And that has influenced in a number of accidents that I've investigated in the past has influenced bad decision making got to accomplish the mission got to get it in there got to be there because it's costly in contract terms because there are monetary penalties and if you have so many penalties uh big brother will probably con- cancel that contract so uh there's a lot of outside influences as to why pilots may try to do things with, uh, with these types of flights that you wouldn't normally see. And that should be one primary aspect of, uh, of the NTSB's investigation, is looking at on-time performance. Um, there was apparently based on some internet traffic about this accident, there was uh, another aircraft or at least another flight that had diverted to a different airport uh, because of the weather. So all of these things are gonna come into play. Um, with regard to why or why not this young lady continued to try and shoot this approach multiple times rather than diverting to another airport. Uh, you mentioned, John, uh, when we were talking off air that uh, the weather, you know, again, the weather is going to be one of those things where it's weather's it's very subjective when it comes to uh, pilots and the operation of an airplane. Um, if the weather's down to minimums, Some people go, well, hey, it was down to minimums. You can still shoot the approach. Yes, you can, but are there influences that, yeah, the weather is at minimum, but you know that the airport's just right there. And, you know, do you squeak down another 50 feet seeing if you can catch a peak of the runway environment to continue the approach? Because the last thing you want to have to do is abandon it.
2: Yeah, and considering this was her home airport, and that's another factor that, that uh, sometimes enters into people's minds that, you know, they know where everything is and they think they know their position, and they try for that extra fifty feet to, to try to sneak it in. So we'll have to wait and see where that yeah. goes. But and, you know, Greg, as I prepared some of these cases for this for this podcast and our others over the last couple of years, that uh, something has jumped out for me, and that is. You know, we've talked for years in this industry about the doctor killers, the Piper Malibus, and the other airplanes, where people that have some, the means buy these high-performance airplanes and go crash them. But you know what? In the in the last over the last year, there's been a lot of accidents with doctors. As it is that all the doctors have been so wrapped up tight with all the medical problems that we've had in this country with COVID and and all the rest of it? That uh, they're not flying, and because uh, they're not involved in the accidents, they just don't show up. And I'm going to go through it again, yeah, specifically for that for every one of them. But I, I, it's something that jumped out on. And and you know, in in a related
0: discussion with that, and it relates to this accident, and that is, um, this airplane has a Garmin one thousand. Um, it will provide hopefully a lot of information to the NTSB if um, it was equipped with the, uh, the little SD cards to record the data. I use them all the time in accident investigation uh, to put together. They're basically a poor man's flight data recorder, if you will. And so you can get a lot of operational information from those types of systems to try and put the storyline together but automation also in general aviation, I've seen the uptick and that's why we've had this discussion, John. Um, It's not necessarily the airplane anymore. It's not the Malibus, it's not the Bonanzas, it's not the beach barons. As an airplane, it's the automation that's in those airplanes because what pilots uh, tend to lack in their own personal skills, abilities, knowledge, and confidence, they transfer that into the airplane because with all that automation up front, they have TAS, so they can see the ground, basically. They can see rising terrain, they can see obstructions. They have, of course, weather. So now you have XM weather or, or um, uh, ADSB uh data coming up to the airplane. You have traffic, so I know where everybody else is. With all of those kinds of things, and then, of course, you combine that with the GPS, that pretty magenta line that you point and shoot, you know, as long as you keep that little airplane symbol on that magenta line, whether your hand flying the airplane or you got the autopilot on, pilots tend to put themselves in a position of decision-making that's further into a bad situation than they would have normally. And I, I've seen this with my own uh, flying. And that is when, you know, when I learned to fly and instrument flying, you know, those of us that can relate to the old six packs, I, I still think to this day, that is the way to teach every new instrument pilot. Why? Because it forces them to make mental models, to see what it is that they're doing, and it forces you into decision-making further back to give you a little more margin than waiting till you're in a bad situation and then trying to figure it out on the fly after you've already committed yourself a little further than you probably wanted to. So. I mean, these are the human factors elements that I see in a lot of accidents. I've, discuss, I've discussed it um, on a variety of shows and in, of course, this show. And I've also had to write about it as an expert witness in trying to explain it. And um, it's not easily explained, especially when the person is uh, is no longer with us, but there are a lot of circumstances, John, where you can line up those, those pieces of Swiss cheeses swiss cheese if you will that uh that dr reasons has talked about and ingrained in everybody in in Axe investigation and human factors um discussions that it's the swiss cheese model you know all those pieces of swiss cheese line up and you have all the perfect circles and uh next thing you know bad things are starting to happen and um and you know That's what we're seeing in these types of accidents. And I wish the NTSB would get a little more into those human factors elements. They got people on staff to to help them do it, because maybe that will help enhance aviation safety on the general aviation side of the house.
2: Yeah, I wish they would do a lot more work on the general aviation side of the house. You know, As you were going through the chain of, of events that you would look at, the chain of circumstances maybe, That you would look at in an investigation i'm thinking about a number of emails that we've gotten from people who still just focus on one piece of it and they don't take a they don't take the time uh, to mentally grasp this this all these events that come together in sequence to make an accident yeah and we'll talk about that with with a couple of the emails that we've selected to talk about but you know, folks out there, accidents are a chain of events. We've heard it a million times. I hear many of our people will mention it in the, in the podcast, but then the next sentence is focused down into the weeds and they discounted all the other pieces that lead up to it, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, the narrative that the news, news industry created over the two Boeing accidents is a perfect example and uh, why don't we get into that one, or uh, one, yeah. those multiple emails we have from from folks that that have disregarded all of that, you know. And the first one I like to talk about Faulkner because somebody criticized me in one of the in one of the emails yep. about Faulkner. Now he was charged. Well, hold on a second. Let's set people up if they haven't heard it.
0: We had a show uh, where we brought on Jeffrey Thomas. Um, he is an award-winning journalist, he, uh, he is down under, he lives in Perth, he puts out a lot of great content with regard to not only Boeing, but Airbus and the aviation industry as a whole, and um, he is very well respected, he, uh, you see him quite a bit, and um, he was on almost every day when uh, MH370 happened because he had his finger on the pulse of what was going on with uh, the Australian investigative team, of course, Malaysia and, and others. And so we had him on the show and we had a very open and frank discussion about the two max accidents and what was going on with Boeing with regard to not only those accidents, but just Boeing as a whole and the relationship between Boeing and the FAA and, and other parts of the industry. And, um, You and I, John, have dissected these max accidents. Uh, We've done Lion Air to the nth degree where we were waiting for the uh, final, final Ethiopian report which I'm now satisfied it's never gonna come. So you and I are working off the kind of final interim final report that the Ethiopians put out. But when you dissect the pure facts, conditions, and circumstances of just those accidents, just the accidents, not this sexy story relationship between Boeing and and the FAA that has really, uh, you know, circulated around the world and that became the focus. But when you look at the facts, conditions, and circumstances of each of these two accidents, I was critical of the pilots, I was critical of the organization, the airline. And I took a little bit of heat because they said, ah, you always blame the pilots. I'm a pilot, the last thing I want to do is blame a pilot, but again, like you were just talking about, John, you have got to separate and, and a lot of our audience tends to get, you know, they focus on factoids. And we've talked about, you build a storyline around a factoid, it's gonna be wrong. And that's what we try not to do. You and I have done it for a very long time. We look at the, the the big scope and in our discussion with Jeffrey, he even agreed. And when we were critical of this Netflix show, we we presented the facts that weren't presented by the Netflix show, the backstories, if you will, about those Max accidents, we were very um, uh, uh, in agreement, if you will, um, with the the downfall of Boeing in the second part of that show and what led to their downfall and the the uh, acquisition of McDonnell Douglas and and the assets and the people and and the attitudes, and so uh, of course we had somebody write in saying that. Uh, you know it was a great show except and and you took the heat for some of it and and mark and mark forkner who was the uh the one of the production test pilots came under fire a couple of years ago as being the uh the linchpin if you will for all of this mac stuff and a lot of us in the industry shook our heads saying that can't be possible he's just mid-level in
2: management there are a lot of people above him so why is he taking the heat for it you know and uh, nobody wants to hear that, that believes that faulkner had a role in there wants to hear they took him to court the u.s government took him to court and at, i think the hear, the court hearing went almost two weeks and the jury only took two hours to say that he wasn't guilty Yeah, and they got to hear all the facts all right, it's probably stuff that we didn't even pick up on, because it was hidden inside either Boeing documents that are proprietary or whatever. But the jury heard it all, and they found him not guilty. So that's a very telling comment. But I'd like to go back to to the uh, Indonesian accident. You know, if we don't blame the pilots, I blame more than one pilot for that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and I blame a bunch of my fellow mechanics. That airplane came out of China, out of Beijing, with an with a angle of attack transducer uh, that wasn't, wasn't working properly. And they carried that for, the, the accident occurred 30 days later. They carried it for 29 days. Maintenance touched the airplane repeatedly in those 29 days and they continued to release it. And I have said uh, on TV, I've said it in a lot of places, that I don't know a mechanic in this country that works for an airline that would have released that airplane.
0: Yeah,
2: I, they just would not have happened. You might have taken the chance to get it out of out of Beijing to get it back to to home base, but it would have ended right there. They would not have taken it any further. But not only were they nursing, was maintenance nursing this on? They were actually talking to the pilots about carrying this airplane. And the pilots did, unfortunately. The pilots did. And I really would would uh, would would hang out to dry the pilots of this airplane the day before the accident, because they flew it all day with a damn stick shaker just <laughs> shaking for the entire flight. Just imagine, as a pilot, those of you that are listening, to the pilots, you're sitting there with your hands on the control column, and the whole way is like, hey. for two hours, right? Two hours having that thing go off, and then you bring it into the maintenance station and you don't write it up. Yeah. Not in the logbook. There's no indication that they told maintenance that they had that problem. So you talk about hiding a, a critical defect in the airplane. I mean, really. And that's the that's the lead up into these pilots that come to work and don't know any of that past stuff and take an airplane that's sick and go crash it. And that's and why
0: John, when we talk about the sequence of events, the sequence of events starts well before the accident, and whether it's the day before, an hour before, or in this case, 30 days before, where you start looking at the lineage of what was going on with that airplane and its maintenance history, you see that it was being carried around the system, um, and every mechanic that touched it returned it to service, including the guys out of Bally who mechanics actually talked the pilots into flying this airplane back to jakarta because they couldn't fix it in bali so they said hey just get this airplane back to jakarta they'll fix it at the the base and these guys instead of saying not only no but hell no they took the airplane and and so you know with mark and and what happened with him a lot of people didn't bothered to do the research. They saw the front side story, and we're always talking about the backside. We're always talking about what's in the shadows. When you look at what Mark was talking about through these emails, because it was his emails that were really the, uh, the center um, focal point of, uh, of what uh, was coming down on him, those emails, as we were briefed, and as we understand it, and as you read them, if you really read them, It had nothing to do with the physical airplane itself. This airplane wasn't doing all the things that Mark said in these emails in the air, not in any way, shape or form. He was talking about the engineering simulator and the fact that the data that they were pumping into it was causing the simulator to do things that it shouldn't be doing that made the airplane really uncontrollable in the simulator, not in the airplane. But people wanted to make a sexy story out of it. And they basically said, look at all these emails that said that this airplane couldn't fly. It was this, that, and the other, and Mark's flying. It was the simulator. And I'm sure that amongst all of the facts that the jury got, that was the explanation and the interpretation, and of course, the proof that, hey, look, this wasn't happening with the airplane. This was happening in a simulator. And there is a difference for those that are listening to the show or watching us. There is a difference between the engineering simulator at a manufacturer like Boeing and the pilot simulator that a pilot would get into when they go to a training center to fly. There is a big difference. And that difference has to do with the fidelity of the data. When I did Silk Air, we didn't get into a pilot simulator to try and understand the motion of the airplane based on the radar data. We got into an engineering simulator because it has more freedom of motion. It has better fidelity for us to dissect because they don't program in all of these wild parameters into a pilot training simulator. So like you were talking about, John, you can't just separate and take these little factoids and then be critical of us without having done your research. We don't mind the criticism, we appreciate people's point of view and and opinions and and that kind of thing, because yeah, sometimes we do miss things or we don't talk about it or we may have taken it out of context. But, you know, again, you have to be sure that you've researched it like we've researched it to know about these things. So that if you wanna be critical, great, because I wanna learn from someone else's criticism. But if it's just gonna be in attack mode and say, well, you always blame the pilot. I don't always blame. Last thing I wanna do is blame a pilot because I'm a pilot. But if the facts support that the pilot decision-making operation or they lacked operational discipline or they didn't understand what they were doing, if the facts support that, I'm I'm sure as hell I'm not going to protect them either.
2: Yes, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts
0: and and you know you're the same way with maintenance folks we are not infallible and and the fact is is that that's what being an accident investigator is all about is taking all those facts and putting those facts into context as they relate to the specific event not all the airy fairy stuff not the you tell me I, i challenge anybody out there to tell me how this quote love in between the faa and boeing had a physical contribution to the accident in Lion Air or Ethiopia. Because when you look at the facts, the physical facts, the captain on Lion Air 610 had the airplane flying for 13 minutes. It was the last 52 seconds that killed him when the first officer was flying and he was flying and not doing the things that the captain had been doing to keep the airplane flying for 13 minutes. So you tell me, I I understand all those issues and those issues are a concern. And oh, by the way, they aren't just happening here in the United States. There are issues, there are shadow issues, there are backstories that are going on with every aircraft manufacturer and every regulation or regulatory authority out there. It's just that if they don't culminate in an accident and a lot of attention isn't brought to them, then of course, they will just hover in that background until something bad happens. And we've seen a number of close calls and instances um, with composite materials on the A350. We're looking at it, you're looking at it in in really depth with Pratt and & Whitney and, and the Pratt & Whitney issue on 777s and things like that. So, you know, the sexy story, yeah, is sexy. And yeah, it sells newspapers, if you will, and it's got to fill the airtime. but in order to enhance aviation safety you have to look at the facts you have to look at what actually happened and put them in context ethiopian airlines those that those two pilots had these quote new procedures which were really a reiteration of old procedures that came out of the indonesian accident and in fact they followed part of those procedures and the airplane was flyable but then those guys after they turned off the stab trim switches, turned them back on. There's nothing in the procedure to tell you to do that. And as soon as they did that, MCAS starts firing. They never pulled the power back like you you mentioned to me earlier. The, I mean, they're still blasting off at takeoff power. I mean, it's just a series of not only errors, it was errors and omissions on a flight crew that had no business really being in the front end of that airplane. And And again, I'm a pilot. Last thing I want to do is blame a pilot. But when you have these kinds of mistakes from a trained flight crew, a professional flight crew flying for a airline that thinks that they're top shelf, I have
2: problems with that. You know, and you you mentioned training a few times. <clears throat> I still haven't seen anybody in a position of, of uh, power to talk about looking at the training syllabus between uh, the U.S. carriers, European carriers, and other country carriers, South America. Yep. Uh, because why didn't we have or any of the, any of the other operators of the MAX have these problems? So there, there's something under there. That and and, at. and you bring up a good point,
0: John, and that is, if I was doing an AX investigation that's going to have an effect in the fleet around the world, I would have done just that. You got enough investigators, you put somebody on there, you create a team and you go, I want you to call all of these max operators and find out what their training program is, who does it, how long it is, and then what they do with it.
2: What the syllabus is, right? Yes. What's
0: in it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if, because we're making recommendations as the NTSB that affect the fleet and they affect operators around the world just as if the french were doing an investigation or the brits or the australians or anybody else if there is something that's going to affect the fleet then you should get at least a consensus around the world to make sure that you're not just doing you know your recommendation isn't just in isolation for a particular carrier that it affects everybody
2: who is operating that aircraft so we had a number of people a number three or four People that uh, comment along the general lines of Boeing has made so many successful airplanes they can't believe uh, that the Max would be where it is today. But uh, we talked about that uh, repeatedly when we talked about Boeing in the changes that came after mcdonald's Douglas took them over. The Triple Seven was was designed and certified before the merger with McDonnell Douglas. The 787 and the MAX were products of post-merger. And both of those have suffered a considerable pain in their operation because of the procedures that they put in place for McDonnell Douglas. Most people don't know that, that many Boeing employees were so fed up with the McDonnell Douglas management that came in that they quit, including Alan Mahali, who was going to be the next president of Boeing, and he quit, and he went to Ford. And uh, I, I know, personally know, I, at least a half a dozen people, engineers that have left Boeing because of that merger. They just were frustrated trying to deal with the issues that were coming up and the management stonewalling it. And now they got their comings down, even though they walked away with a bundle of money, most of them, uh which it's that's unfortunate but what you know that's above my pay grade the uh i hope boeing gets back on track they've gotten rid of some of the senior management the 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 highest level mcdonald douglas people but i'm sure there's still quite a few you yeah. uh, know in the and, middle someplace.
0: and of course you know we're, we've seen this in other examples uh we've seen it with other manufacturers I saw a lot of this when I was doing the ATR 72 accident in Roselawn in uh, Indiana and some of the games that were being played. Okay, I understand that we understand that, and yes, it is an issue that needs to be addressed, but um, when when we're looking at these kinds of events and we're looking at the sequence of events to to at least help our audience who is listening, understand what it is an investigator or a team of investigators is gonna look at. These are the issues. Um, There are are multitudes of issues out there that happen every single day. And it is is dependent on the investigative authority to broaden their scope, especially if there's some sort of systemic problem. Like you were talking about, John, the, the, the fact that, You know, Boeing has been successful in certifying these airplanes in the past, just like Airbus, just like Embraer, just like a lot of these other manufacturers have been very successful, despite some of the issues that come out as the result of an accident. The fact is, is that these growing paints, and as Jeffrey talked about on the show, the 737 MAX, everybody, you know, got the facts wrong, again, because it wasn't a sexy story. They said all they were, Boeing was in a race with Airbus because Airbus was getting the A320neo out there and it was gonna be the best airplane and it was gonna take over the market and everything else. And they rushed uh, the 737 MAX into, uh, into production. Guess what? They didn't. This was one of the longest, if not the longest certification processes for this derivative of the 737, it was over five years. And so again, if you're going to talk and you're going to make statements and have opinions that's great but you better have the facts correct and unfortunately the media played up on this because somebody said oh my god there was this race you know and they were racing airbus to to get to the airlines well apparently they weren't racing fast enough um, because uh, it took them five years to get the airplane certified and on top of it they did have issues uh, with the engines as well so again I mean, there is always a backstory, but you gotta have the facts of the backstory. You know, the street talk, yeah, it may sell papers for a while, uh, just like the sexy story that, you know, (laughs) Boeing was self-certifying the airplane. Guess what? If you wanna use that type of mentality, then every manufacturer out there is self-certified because the FAA gives aircraft manufacturers and component manufacturers the ability to have in-house certification through DERs, designated engineering representatives, airworthiness representatives, manufacturing representatives, who work on behalf of the FAA but paid by the manufacturer, and so there is still accountability there. It still has to go through a formal FAA process. It isn't that they can just stroke the pen and go, "Hey, we're good to go." And so again, you have to understand it, and that's what we try to be, you know, That's what we've been trying to do uh, with this, and we again. We don't mind the criticism, uh we don't mind the opinions, but what we want to do is make sure that if we're going to learn something new, it's based on fact. Keeps us on
2: our toes as well. Yep, absolutely. We got a couple of comments from from a few people about how come how come our information is not picked up by the by media coverage and the rest. Well. (laughs) <laughs> part <of> the, <laughs> uh, that's part funny. of the reason why you don't see us on TV as much as you used to, because we've made so much noise with the with the uh, ma- the producers of those TV programs that they don't want to hear us. Yeah, and, uh, and that goes to Congress too, because the two of us spent a number of days talking to congressional staffers, laying out the facts and circumstances for the Max accident and none of it, zero, was used because it didn't fit the narrative that they wanted to. That's right. They selectively
0: filtered it and yep. it, it wasn't sexy. That's why they got Sullenberger and a few other people we know up there because they'll parrot anything somebody wants them to parrot. And I can back that up with facts. So if somebody wants to be critical of me, fine, let them be critical, but I can show on multiple occasions where somebody has made a statement that is not based on fact. Um, it is the twisting or uh, manipulation of the facts to support someone else's narrative. Um, that's why you and I don't spend a lot of time on TV anymore because don't people don't wanna hear the factual narrative because that's not sexy. And I talked nauseam about that in the first few shows that we ever did um, with regard to, we don't talk sexy. We talk facts, it's black and white, here it is. And this is the bottom line. Because that's what aviation and aviation safety is all about. It is not building a narrative so that somebody, I mean, how many books did Jeffrey say there were? Well over a hundred books on MH370. None of which, none of which are fact-based because all of those books that have a, a, um, (laughs) at least a prophecy of what the going theory is on what caused that uh, event to occur and the outcome of the airplane is not based on any facts. I don't know how many people said it was an in-flight fire. You show me the evidence that it was an in-flight fire. How many people have said that it was, of course, a bomb or something else? Show me the evidence. The highest probability is, of course, based on fact, as we know it today, that it was an intentional act. And while some of the information is circumstantial. It's it supports the narrative better than an in flight fire, how are you going to have an in flight fire on an airplane that burns for seven hours and doesn't burn that airplane out of the sky well before that it makes no sense. All there was electrical malfunction that caused the airplane to crash airplanes don't fly for seven hours They've got electrical malfunction that's going to take out an autopilot or pilots or anybody. There are so many different narratives, but people made some money selling their interpretation of factoids so well john I know we got to wrap this show up um you and I had the opportunity uh to be in Nashville uh we talked to a a very large maintenance organization who I really like what they do they they bring in customers as part of their advisory board so that they can get real real real-time feedback from actual customers as to what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, where they can improve, and things like that. And we had the opportunity to sit through that, and then, um, and then present for three hours. uh, Some of the facts that we understand from a variety of different types of accidents maintenance related accidents, operations related accidents and everything in between. And uh, we always appreciate these opportunities because we try to give back this, this knowledge and information. We've gotten a lot of feedback from the folks in attendance there, including the host. Uh, I just received a text about the fact that we were a, a big hit. We don't do these to be a big hit. We do these uh, you know, to be educators and to pass or at least give back into the industry what we know what we've learned so that they can use this in their own respective organizations or operations uh, to enhance their safety and and of course enhance uh, aviation safety overall so um, i've sent uh, i've sent some information back to them and i look for more um, maintenance organizations flight departments everybody else reach out to us because John and I, uh, we, we this is our give back. This is the way we do it besides this particular show. And um, and we'll be happy to, to come in and give you what we know. We use case studies, examples, and and that kind of thing, things that you're never going to read about in a report.
2: And so uh, we- and, and tailor them to their operation. Yep. If they're a Learjet operation, we'll focus in on all the LEAJET issues. Yeah. If yeah. You, or three types, we'll, we'll do two or three types. I mean, we just, we just did another, you know, we did uh, the one in Phoenix too, just uh, three yeah. weeks. ago.
0: Yeah, to a very large flight department that spread out all all over the country. So uh, you know, those are unique issues, because uh, you have a lot of folks that are operating an airplane that do belong to the flight department, but they're running uh, their particular operation autonomously, they don't have the type of oversight that if everybody was coming back to home base every night, because these airplanes aren't. So there are unique things that we try to bring out based on accidents and incidents that we've seen in the past to hopefully help them um, you know, improve their particular flight operation, their oversight, their accountability, so that they don't have a serious incident or accident. Well, John, uh, we've come to another end or conclusion temporary conclusion of a flight safety detective episode and of course i've shot off my mouth enough during this show so as i always do
2: i will leave you with our last words right, and i'm going to add a little bit to the last word this week because in looking through some of the accidents of well, recent past uh, there's a number of accidents that involve student pilots renting airplanes And pilot uh, students with instructors that have damaged and and, in some cases totaled the airplane. And if you're out there flying as a student, or less taking lessons, please get yourself an insurance policy. I'm told that these policies are like ninety-five dollars for some of the basic policies. They're not. I mean, it's less than an hour's uh, flight time, and you're going to protect yourself. So, rule one, if you're a student or renting an airplane, protect yourself with your own insurance policy. Two, if you are going flying, do a thorough pre-planning session. Remember, it's not the weather in the beginning and the end, it's the weather in the middle as well. In fact, they've been taught as off doing this cross-country today, and I hope he does well on that. The weather has been a little bit iffy around here. and. When you get out to your airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight. you know, touch your airplane. If you don't know what you're looking for, find a mechanic that works on the airplane and ask them. And after you take off, please, please put your head on a swivel and keep your eyes open. Look for traffic. I mean, we've got those traffic accidents coming back again. Some near misses and a few collisions. So please don't take. You know, make it a real accident. Don't make it something dumb.
0: Make it a real accident. Don't encourage people to have
2: accidents. (laughs) Don't have a stupid one.
0: We don't want anybody who's listening to us or subscribing to us to have an accident.
2: (laughs) True. True. But it's painful to have the stupid ones.
0: Yeah, well.
2: Totally avoidable because you've done... You're not paying attention. You're not, head's not in the cockpit. So that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Don't, if you go flying, focus on your flying, nothing else. Yeah,
0: John, that's why I keep you around. You are always good for some entertainment.
2: Okay, so please fly safely, everybody.
1: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 888 Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe